Section 6 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. Chapter 5. What the King Came to, Part 2. Servants wore fine clothes and aped fine manners. The footmen of the Lords and Commons held mimic Parliament, while waiting for their masters at Westminster, parodying with elaborate care the proceedings of both houses. They imitated their masters in other ways, too, taking their titles after the fashion made famous by Jules Blas and his fellow valets, and familiar by the farce of High Life Below Stairs. The writer of The Patriot of Thursday, August nineteenth, 1714, satirizes misplaced ambition by, quote, a discourse which I overheard not many evenings ago as I went with a friend of mine into Hyde Park. We found, as usual, a great number of gentlemen servants at the park gate, and my friend, being unacquainted with the saucy custom of those fellows to usurp their master's titles, was very much surprised to hear a lusty rogue tell one of his companions who inquired after his fellow-servant that his grace had his head broke by the cook-maid for making a sop in the pan. Presently, after another assured the company of the illness of my lord bishop, the information had doubtless continued, had not a fellow in a blue livery alarmed the rest with the news that Sir Edward and the Marquis were at fisticuffs about a game at Chuck, and that the brigadier had challenged the major-general to a bout at cudgels." It is only fair, after enumerating so many of the eccentricities and discomforts of early Georgian London, to mention one proof of civilization of which Londoners were then able to boast. London had a penny post, of which it was not unreasonably proud. This penny post is thus described in Stripe's edition of Stowe's Survey of London, quote, For a further convenience to the inhabitants of this city and parts adjacent, for about ten miles compass, another post, and that a foot-post, commonly called the penny-post, was erected, and though at first set up by a private hand, yet being of such considerable amount, is since taken into the post-office, and made a branch of it. And in this all letters and parcels not exceeding a pound weight, and also any sum of money not above ten pounds, or parcel of ten pound value, is safely conveyed, and at the charge of a penny, to all parts of the city and suburbs, and but a penny more at the delivery to most towns within ten miles of London, and to some towns at a farther distance. And for the better management of this office, there are in London and Westminster six general post offices, at all which there constantly attend officers to receive letters and parcels from the several places appointed to take them in there being a place or receiving-house for the receipt thereof in most streets, and a table hung at the door or shop-window in which is printed in great letters, penny-post letters and parcels are taken in here, and at those houses they have letter-carriers to call every hour, all the day long they are employed, some in going their walks to bring in, and others to carry out." End quote. The next town in population to London was Bristol, and Bristol had then only one-seventeenth of London's population. The growth of the manufacturing industry, which has created such a cluster of great towns in the north of England, had hardly begun to show itself when George I came to the throne. Bristol 
was not only the most populous place after London at this time, but it was the great English seaport. It had held this rank for centuries. Even at the time when Tom Jones was written, many years after the accession of George I, the Bristol alderman filled the same place in popular imagination that is now assigned to the aldermen of London. Fielding attributes to the Bristol alderman that fine appreciation of the qualities of turtle soup with which more modern humorists have endowed his metropolitan fellow. Liverpool was hardly thought of in the early Georgian days. It was only made into a separate parish a few years before George came to the throne, and its first dock was opened in 1709. Manchester was comparatively obscure and unimportant, and had not yet made its first export of cotton goods. At this time, Norwich, famous for its worsted and woolen works, and its fuller's earth, surpassed it in business importance. By the middle of the century, the population of Bristol is said to have exceeded 90,000, Norwich to have had more than 56,000, Manchester about 45,000, Newcastle 40,000, and Birmingham about 30,000, while Liverpool had swelled to about 30,000 and ranked as the third port in the country. York was the chief city of the northern counties, Exeter the capital of the west. Shrewsbury was of some account in the region toward the Welsh frontier. Worcester, Derby, Nottingham, and Canterbury were places of note. Bath had not come into its fashion and its fame as yet. Its first pump-room had been built only a few years before George entered England. The strength of England now, if we leave London out of consideration, lies in the north and goes no further southward than a line which would include Birmingham. In the early days of the Georges, this was just the part of England which was of least importance, whether as regards manufacturing energy or political power. Ireland just then was quiet. It had sunk into a quietude something like that of the grave. Civil war had swept over the country. A succession of civil wars indeed had plagued it. There was a time just before the outbreak of the parliamentary struggle against Charles I when, according to Clarendon, Ireland was becoming a highly prosperous country growing vigorously in trade, manufacture, letters, and arts, and beginning to be, as he puts it, a jewel of great luster in the royal diadem. But civil war and religious persecution had blighted this rising prosperity, and for the evils coming from political proscription and religious persecution, the statesmen of the time could think of no remedy but new prescription and fresh persecution. Roman Catholics were excluded from the legislature, from municipal corporations, and from the liberal professions. They were not allowed to teach or to be taught by Catholics. They were not permitted to keep arms. The trade and navigation of Ireland was put under ruinous restrictions and disabilities. In the reign of Anne, new acts had been passed by the Irish Parliament, and sanctioned by the crown quote, to prevent 
the further growth of popery. Some of these later measures introduced not a few of the very harshest conditions of the penal code against Catholics. The Irish Parliament at that time was merely, in fact, what has since been called the British garrison. It consisted of the conquerors and the settlers. The Irish people had no more to do with it, except in the way of suffering under it, than the slaves in Georgia thirty years ago had to do with the Congress at Washington. Dublin has perhaps changed less than London since 1714, but it has changed greatly notwithstanding. The Irish Parliament was already established in College Green, but not in the familiar building which it afterwards occupied. It met in Chichester House, which had been built as a hospital by Sir George Carew at the close of the 16th century. From him, it passed into the possession of Sir Arthur Chichester, an English soldier of fortune, who had distinguished himself in France under Henry IV, and who afterwards came to Ireland and played an active part in the plantation of Ulster. It was not until 1728 that Chichester House was pulled down and the new building erected upon its site. Trinity College, of course, stood on College Green, so did two other stately dwellings, Charlemont House and Clancarty House, both of which have long since passed away. There were several bookshops on the green as well, and a great many taverns and coffee shops. The statue of King William III had been set up in 1701. The collegians professed great indignation at the manner in which the statue turned its back to the college gates, and the effigy was the object of many indignities for which the students sometimes got into grave trouble with the authorities. St. Patrick's Well was one of the great features of Dublin in the early part of the last century. It stood in the narrow way by Trinity College, the name of which had not long been altered from Patrick's Well Lane to Nassau Street. The change had been made in compliment to a bust of William III, which adorned the front of one of the houses, but for long after the place was much more associated with the well than with the house of orange the waters of the well were popularly supposed to have wonderful curative and health-giving properties and it was much used it dried up suddenly in seventeen twenty nine and gave swift the opportunity of writing some fiercely indignant national verses but the water was restored to it in seventeen thirty one and it still exists in peaceful, half-forgotten obscurity in the college grounds. Dawson Street, off Nassau Street, had only newly come into existence. It was called after Joshua Dawson, who had just built for himself a handsome mansion with gardens round it. He sold the house in 1715 to the Dublin Corporation to be used as a mansion house for the Lord Mayor's. Where Molesworth and Kildare Streets now stand, there was at this time a great piece of wasteland called Molesworth's Fields. Chapel Lazad, now a sufficiently populous suburb, was then the little village of Chapel Izud, said to be so called from that Belle Izud, daughter of King Anguish of Ireland, who was beloved by Tristram. The general post office in Sycamore Alley 
had for postmaster general isaac manley who was a friend of swift's manley incurred the dean's resentment in seventeen eighteen by opening letters addressed to him the postal arrangements were as may be imagined miserably defective owing to the carelessness of postmasters the idleness of postboys bad horses and sometimes the want of horses much time was lost and letters constantly miscarried the amusements of dublin were those of london on a small scale dublin was as fond of its coffee-houses as london itself lucas's in cork street was the favourite resort of beaux gamesters and bullies here talbot edgeworth miss edgeworth's ancestor whom swift called the prince of puppies displayed his follies his fine dresses and his handsome face and believed himself to be the terror of men and the adoration of women till he died mad in the dublin bridewell the yard behind lucas's was the theatre of numerous duels which were generally witnessed from the windows by all the company who happened to be present these took care that the laws of honourable combat were observed close at hand was the swan tavern in swan alley a district devoted chiefly to gambling-houses on cork hill was the cockpit royal where gentlemen and ruffians mingled together to witness and wager on the sport cork hill was not a pleasant place at night pedestrians were often insulted and roughly treated by the chairmen hanging about lucas's and the eagle tavern even the waiters of these establishments sometimes amused themselves by pouring pailfuls of foul water upon the aggrieved passer-by it is not surprising therefore to find that an irish edition of the hellfire club was set up at the eagle in seventeen thirty five the roughness of the time found its way into the theatre in smock lane which was the scene of frequent political riots dublin had its pasquin or marforio in an oaken image known as the wooden man which had stood on the southern side of essex street not far from eustace street since the end of the seventeenth century cork limerick waterford and belfast were the only considerable towns in ireland after the irish capital not many years had passed since cork was besieged by marlborough himself and taken from king james the duke of grafton one of the sons of charles the second was killed then in a little street or lane which still commemorates the fact by its name the same year that saw marlborough besieging cork saw limerick invested by the forces of king william under william's own command the irish general sarsfield held out so gallantly that william had to give up the attempt and it was not until the following year and after the cause of james had gone down everywhere else that sarsfield consented to accept the terms most honourable to him of the famous treaty of limerick there was but little feeling in ireland in favour of the chevalier at the time of queen anne's death any sympathy with the stuart cause that still lingered was sentimental merely and even as such hardly existed among the great mass of the people to these indeed the change of masters could matter but little they had had enough of the stuarts 
and the conduct of james the second during his irish campaign had made his name and his memory despised rightly or wrongly he was charged with cowardice he who in his early days had heard his bravery in action praised by the great turenne and the charge was fatal to him in the minds of the irish people the penal laws of anne's days were not excused because of any strong jacobite sympathies or active jacobite schemes in ireland the union between england and scotland was only seven years old when george came to the throne of these kingdoms and already an attempt had been made by a powerful party in scotland to obtain its repeal the union was unquestionably accomplished by lord somers and other english statesmen with the object of securing the succession much rather than the national interests of the scottish people it was for a long time detested in scotland the manner of its accomplishment mainly by bribery and threats made it more odious yet it was based on principles which secured the dearest interests of scotland and respected the religious opinions of the population scottish law scottish systems and the scotch church were left without interference and constitutional security was given for the maintenance of the presbyterian establishment in plain words the union admitted and maintained the rights and the claims of the great majority of the scotch people and therefore when the first heat of dislike to it had gone out scotland began to find that she could be old scotland still even when combined in one constitutional system with england she soon accepted cordially the conditions which opened new ways to her industrial and trading energy and did not practically interfere with her true national independence edinburgh was then and remained for generations to come much the same as it appeared when mary stuart first visited it historians like brantome and poets like ronsard lamented for their fair princess exiled in a savage land but the daughter of the house of lorraine might well have been content with the curious beauty of her new capital even now more than three centuries since mary stuart landed in scotland and more than a century and a half since her descendant raised the standard of rebellion against the elector of hanover edinburgh old town retains more of its antique characteristics than either of the capitals of the sister kingdoms it is true that the northern athens has followed the example of its greek original in shifting the scene of its social life the attic athens of to-day occupies a different site from that of the city of pericles new edinburgh has reared itself on the other bank of that chasm where once the north river flowed and where now the trains run edinburgh however more fortunate than the city of xicrops while founding a new town has not lost the old but at the time of the hanoverian accession and for generations later not a house of the new town had been built edinburgh was still a walled city with many gates or ports occupying the same ground that she had covered in the reign of james the third along the ridge between the grey castle on the height at the west and haunted holyrood in the plain at the east all along this ridge rose the huge buildings 
lands as they were called stretching from peak to peak like a mountain range five six sometimes ten stories high pierced with innumerable windows crowned with jagged fantastic roofs and gables and as crowded with life as the insulae of imperial rome over all rose the graceful pinnacle of st giles church around whose base the booths of goldsmiths and other craftsmen clustered the great main street of this old town was and is the canongate with its hundred or so of narrow closes or winds running off from it at right angles the houses in these closes were as tall as the rest though the space across the street was often not more than four or five feet wide the cannon gate was edinburgh in the early days of the last century far more than st james's street was london its high houses with their wooden panellings with the old armorial devices on their doors and their common stair climbing from story to story outside have seen the whole panorama of scottish history pass by life cannot have been very comfortable in edinburgh there were no open spaces or squares in the royalty with the exception of the parliament close the houses were so well and strongly built that the city was seldom troubled by fire but they were poor inside with low dark rooms we find in consequence that houses inhabited by the gentry in the early part of the eighteenth century were considered almost too bad for very humble folk at its close and the success of the new town was assured from the day when its first foundation stone was laid but if not very comfortable life was quiet and simple people generally dined at one or two o'clock at edinburgh when george i was king shopkeepers closed their shops when they dined and opened them again for business when the meal was over there was very little luxury wine was seldom seen on the tables of the middle classes and few people kept carriages there were not many amusements friends met at each other's houses to take tea at five o'clock and perhaps to listen to a little music for the edinburghers were fond of music and an annual concert which was established early in the century lingered on till within three years of its close but this simplicity was not immortal and we hear sad complaints as the century grows old concerning the decadence of manners made manifest in the luxurious practice of dining as late as four or five the freer use of wine and other signs of over-civilization glasgow in the clyde valley ranked next to edinburgh in importance among scotch towns more than twenty years later than the time of which we treat the author of a pamphlet called memoirs of the times could write glasgow is become the third trading city in the island but in seventeen fourteen the future of its commercial prosperity founded upon its trade with the west indies and the american colonies had scarcely dawned the scotch merchants had not yet been able from want of capital and it was said the jealousy of the english merchants to make much use of the privileges conferred upon them by the union and glasgow was on the wrong side of the island for sharing in scotland's slight continental trade still glasgow was fairly thriving thanks to the inland navigation of the clyde 
some of its streets were broad many of its houses substantial and even stately its pride was the great minster of st mungo's a solid wheel jointed mason work that will stand as lang as the world keep hands and gumpooler aff it to quote the enthusiastic words of andrew fairservice the streets were often thronged with the wild highlanders from the hills who came down as heavily and as variously armed as a modern albanian chieftain to trade in small cattle and shaggy ponies at this time the average englishman knew little about the lowlands and nothing about the highlands of scotland the londoner of the age of anne would have looked upon any traveller who had made his way through the highlands of scotland with much the same curiosity as his descendants a generation or two later regarded bruce when he returned from abyssinia and would probably have received most of his statements with a politer but not less profound disbelief it was cited as a proof of the immense popularity of the spectator that despite all the difficulties of intercommunication it found its way into scotland george i had passed away and george ii was reigning in his stead before any englishman was found foolhardy enough to explore the scottish highlands and lucky enough to escape unhurt and publish an account of his experiences and put on record his disgust at the monstrous deformity of the highland scenery but the londoner in seventeen fourteen was scarcely better informed about the scotch lowlands what he could learn was not of a nature to impress him very profoundly scotland then and for some time to come was very far behind england in many things most of all in everything connected with agriculture in the villages the people dwelt in rude but fairly comfortable cottages made chiefly of straw mixed clay and straw thatched wearing clothes that were usually homespun home-woven and home-tailored living principally if not entirely on the produce of his own farm the lowland farmer passed a life of curious independence and isolation to plough his land with its strange measurements of oxgate ploughgate and dawach he had clumsy wooden ploughs the very shape of which is now almost a tradition but which were certainly at least as primitive in construction as the plough ulysses guided in his farm at ithaca wheeled vehicles of any kind carts or wheelbarrows were rarities a parish possessed of a couple of carts was considered well provided for even where carts were known they were of little use they were so wretchedly constructed and the few roads that did exist were totally unfit for wheeled traffic roads were as rare in scotland then as they are to-day in the peloponnesus an enterprising aberdeenshire gentleman sir archibald grant of moneymusk is deservedly distinguished for the interest he took in road-making about the time of the hanoverian accession some years later statute labour did a little a very little toward improving the public roads but it was not until after the rebellion of seventeen forty five when the government took the matter in hand that anything really efficient was done a number of good roads then were made chiefly by military labour and received in popular language the special title of the king's highways but in the early part of the century there was little use for carts even of the clumsiest kind such carriage as was necessary 
was accomplished by strings of horses tethered in indian file like the lines of camels in the east and laden with sacks or baskets the cultivation of the soil was poor quote, the surface was generally unenclosed oats and barley the chief grain products wheat little cultivated little hay made for winter the horses then feeding chiefly on straw and oats the arable land ran in narrow slips with stony wastes between like the moraines of a glacier the hay meadow was an undrained marsh where rank grasses mingled with rushes and other aquatic plants yielded a coarse fodder about the time when george i became king of england lord haddington introduced the sowing of clover and other grass seeds some ten years earlier an englishwoman elizabeth mordaunt daughter of the earl of peterborough and wife of the duke of gordon introduced into her husband's estates english ploughs english ploughmen the system of fallowing up in that time unknown in scotland planted moors sowed foreign grasses and showed the moorishire farmers how to make hay as a natural result of the primitive and incomplete agriculture dearth of food was frequent and even severe famine in all its horrors of starvation and death not uncommon when george i came to the throne the century was not old enough for the living generation of scotsmen to forget the ghastly seven years that had brought the seventeenth century to its close seven empty ears blasted with east wind so many died of hunger that in the grim words of one who lived through that time quote, the living were wearied with the burying of the dead the plague of hunger took away all natural and relative affections so that husbands had not sympathy for their wives nor wives for their husbands parents for their children nor children for their parents the saddest proof of the extent of the suffering is shown in the irreligious despair which seized upon the sufferers scotland then as now was strongly marked for its piety but want made men defiant of heaven prepared like her who counselled the man of ooze to curse god and die by the roadside warned by no dream of thin and ill-favoured kine the pharaohs of westminster had passed an act enforced while the famine was well begun against the importation of meal into scotland at the sorest of the famine the importation of meal from ireland was permitted and exportation of grain from scotland prohibited but in the beginning of the eighteenth century when the famine had but just subsided a government commission ordered that all loads of grain brought from ireland into the west of scotland should be staved and sunk the empire over which king george came to rule was as yet in a growing almost a fluid condition in north america england had by one form of settlement or another new york but lately captured new jersey the new england states such as they then were virginia an old possession maryland south carolina pennsylvania settled by william penn whose death was now very near louisiana had just been taken possession of by the french the city of new orleans was not yet built the french held the greater part of what was then known of canada jamaica barbados and other west indian islands were in english ownership the great east indian empire was only in its very earliest germ 
its full development was not yet foreseen by statesman thinker or dreamer the english flag had only begun to float from the rock of gibraltar end of chapter five part two recording by pamela nagami